Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Kaldun Swice. I have a very special guest with me today. I am very honored to have Professor John Carson Lennox of Oxford University, uh, Professor in Theoretical Mathematics uh, at Oxford. He's also Emeritus Professor in Mathematics and Philosopher of Science at the Green Templeton College, of course, also at Oxford. Professor Lennox, I am honored that you're with me today. I'm very pleased to be with you. Thank you for having me on the show. We have some, um, we, let's go ahead and get started. We have some um, uh, difficult questions and problems um, with the area in the scientific enterprise, especially in the area of the academy, which I'm from, which you are well immersed in. Um, the, your new book, Can Science Explain Everything?, which I highly recommend to our listeners, uh, deals with the major stumbling block of our age, scientism or naturalism. Can you give us an, um, an overview of what is it that spawned this book um, and brought, brought it birth? I wrote the book because many people, especially young people and students, are constantly told that science has the answer to every question and therefore we do not need God in this enlightened age. Yes. I had already written a book but called God's Undertaker, How Science Buried God, but it was a bit too dense and a bit too complicated. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to write a book that was much more accessible and judging by the comments I've received so far, I think I may have achieved at least that. <laughs> yes, the brevity of it is um, it's a light read. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm picking up the book right now. It's under 120 by 125 pages, so you can read that in a few hours there through that. Oh, thank you. Professor Lennox, one of the major contentions in the uh, academia is that the majority of scientists and those in the STEM fields, according to the Pew Research Center, uh, uh, more than half, 51% of uh, scientists, excuse me, less than half of 51% of scientists believe in some kind of deity or higher power. Specifically, 33% of those in the hard sciences, only those believe in God. So you have about 18% of the majority of people in the hard sciences actually believing in God, according to the Pew Research study done a few years ago. Why do you think that is? is has that anything to do with naturalism or scientism that's um, infecting that enterprise? Well, I think there are many factors affecting these statistics, and I don't carry the statistics around in my head, <laughs> nor do I believe that these questions are settled by statistics. However, let me say this, that there are many more natural scientists who believe in God that many people think. Hmm. And indeed, if you look over the centuries, it's very interesting to see that between 1900 and 2000, I think it's about 65% of Nobel Prize winners in science believe in God. Hmm. And so the naive idea that science and God conflict essentially is simply false. I think the easy way to see this is not by statistics, but just by reflecting on the following fact. If you take the Nobel Prize for Physics and think it was won by a Scotsman a few years ago, Peter Higgs, the Higgs boson, yes. for which he's rightly famous. Higgs is an atheist. Now, 
Bill Phillips is an American physicist who's also won the Nobel Prize for Physics, and he's a Christian. Hmm. If you think carefully about that, here are two men. What divides them? Not their science. They're both brilliant. They've achieved the highest honors in physics. What divides them is their worldview. Hmm. One's an atheist, the other is a Christian theist. And I think one of the most important points to realize in this whole debate is that what divides people is not some sort of conflict between science and God. There's a conflict between atheism and theism, and there are scientists on both sides of it. So the real question to be faced is, what can we deduce from science? Uh, many young people are told that if you want to be a scientist and intellectually respectable, you can't believe in clean hundred and two thousand. Most of them believe. I don't think that's the case now. Mm. But, you know, I believe that the Christian faith is the truth. And we don't settle truth by statistics. I note the fact that some of my colleagues are atheists, many of them, but also many of them are Christian believers. Yes. And the question to ask is, of the atheists, why are they atheists? And of the believers, why are they believers? Mm. Sometimes scientists will say it's their science that led them to unbelief. But other scientists will honestly tell you, no, they were atheists before they started. So this is a very complex question and doesn't settle any matters of truth. It just talks about their background, right? And um, Alvin Plantinga, in his recent work on this, called it the myth of gigantic proportions, the warfare between science and religion. He argues, as you said, it's not between science and religion per se, it's between scientism, uh, the belief that only science can answer all the questions in religion that's a problem. Well, now we're getting to the heart of it. Hmm. Scientism is very popular, driven forward by people like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking. And it says that science is the only way to truth. Now, let's step back from that. Yes. Firstly, I'm passionate about science. Science is therefore our way to truth and has been very successful. But to say it's the only way to truth, first of all, is a logical contradiction because the very statement science is the only way to truth is not a statement of science. It's simply a statement of belief so that if it's true, it is false. It's logically incoherent. And it's important to realize that Although there are some vocal people saying science is the only way to truth, some of the very greatest scientists have pointed out so clearly that that is simply not the case. One of the most famous is Sir Peter Medawar, hmm. who worked at Oxford, and he wrote a brilliant little book called The Limits of Science that every scientist should read. And in it he said that it's obvious that science is limited because it cannot answer even the questions of a child. Mm. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What is the meaning of my life? And he adds that it is to literature and religion and philosophy that we must turn to answers to those questions. But a second comment, yes. making it even more obvious, is the danger of scientism 
is that people think, firstly, that science is the only way to truth, but secondly, that science is coextensive with rationality, so that if it isn't science, then it's not rational. That's nonsense. History, for example, Mm -hmm. is a highly rational discipline, but it's not natural science. That's right. And uh, once we write off history, you'd have to close faculties at most contemporary universities. (laughs) Philosophy is a rational discipline. Theology is a rational discipline. Economics is a rational discipline. Linguistics is a rational discipline. (laughs) But they're not natural science. So it's a huge mistake to think that science is the only way to truth. And we need to open people's thinking up to see that it's very obvious that science is powerful because it is limited in the number of questions it can ask and answer. As a professor of mathematics, dealing with theoretical mathematics and things of that nature, would you see the area of the mathematical field and the laws governing that as something beyond the very natural world, something that indicates some design behind it? Well, actually, I think this is a very important notion that if you, let's think of mathematics as part of human thought. And C.S. Lewis, many years ago, made the point that there's something very special about human rationality. Because if you try to explain it on the basis of atheism, you end up, I'll put it very crudely, with the idea that thought is a product of the brain and the brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. Hmm. Well, now, actually, that view undermines rationality. I've often put it to colleagues in science who've told me this. I've said, look, if you knew that your computer was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? (laughs) And every every person I've asked that question has said, no, I wouldn't. And yet you trust your brain, which you're telling me is exactly that, Hmm. the end product of a mindless, unguided process. So what I'm saying is this, the existence of thought Whatever kind of rational thought you're thinking about, particularly mathematics, to my mind is evidence that there's something beyond nature. And Lewis put it beautifully. He said any theory that says that human reason is not valid cannot itself be valid because you've reached it by reasoning. Hmm. In other words, if you're going to do science at all, You've got to believe, as Einstein pointed out, and many others, you've got to believe that the universe is rationally intelligible, that you can study it using mathematics and so on. You've got to believe that. Now, what, on what basis do you believe it? You see, atheism, as I've just said, really gives no basis. But Christianity gives a huge basis because it says the reason that science can be done is that your mind inside you, so to speak, and the universe outside you were both ultimately created by an intelligent God. Hmm. And if you read that backwards into history, 
you'll see that it's no accident that modern science rose in the 16th and 17th centuries under the minds, the genius of people like Galileo, Kepler and Newton. They all believed in God. And C.S. Lewis got this dead right mm -hmm. when he said men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So putting it bluntly, I'm not ashamed to be a mathematician and a Christian because arguably it was Christianity that gave me my subject. There's a strong and deep connection between the two. Well said. But Professor, the... And what you just mentioned, you talked about evidence. Uh, I was speaking recently to a chemistry professor before I got on the line with you, and I was asking him what are the same main problems people in his field have on the issue of reconciling faith and uh, reason or science and religion. And he said one of the big stumbling blocks is the question of evidence. We want to see hard evidence. Can you unpack that problem for the scientists and the, the deeply spiritual person to put those two together in your own life? Well, I'm glad you used the word evidence and not proof, because rigorously speaking, proof only occurs in my subject, pure mathematics. In every other field of science or anything else, we can only talk about indicators, evidence, pointers. The first important thing to say about that is, of course, that the evidence can be extremely strong. I cannot prove mathematically that my wife loves me, but I'd stake my life on it. Hmm. And likewise, every time we get into a car, we stake our life on it, even though we can't prove mathematically that it's going to get us to our destination. <laughs> That's right. So the first thing to clear up is evidence-based thinking. Now, the big confusion comes when we start using the word faith, because in English, the word faith comes from the Latin fides, which means trust, mm -hmm. and we get from it the word fidelity. And all of us know that we need hard evidence before we start to trust things and people. Uh, it's gullible people who trust without evidence. And the first important thing to say is that Evidence is very important in science, but it's very important with Christianity and our relationship to God. Mm. Christianity is an evidence-based belief system, and you can see that very easily. The Gospel of John gives us a reason for writing. It goes like this. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, here's the evidence, the signs that Jesus did. They become the basis for faith. And therefore, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. Otherwise, I wouldn't be remotely interested in it. Now, hard evidence mm. comes at various levels. It comes, first of all, I've given you some in terms of science. Right. The very fact we can do science is hard evidence. There's an intelligence behind the universe. Like this podcast, for example. <laughs> 
well, yeah. like this podcast, yeah. exactly. And we can look, first of all, if you like, since you raised the question, to the sciences, the fine-tuning of the constants of nature that has been uncovered by science in the last hundred years is very powerful evidence that there's something very special about this universe. And so it goes on. But that's not the only kind of evidence. We've seen that science is or should be a rational discipline, but so is history. And the important thing about Christianity is that it's not a mere philosophy but it's geared into history. Hmm. It makes fundamental claims. And one of the main reasons I'm a Christian is I believe there is strong historical evidence that convinces me that Jesus rose from the dead or was, to put it more precisely, raised from the dead by the power of God. Now, that's historical evidence, mm -hmm. but there's more than that. There's then the personal evidence of personal experience, and all that adds up to give me a cumulative picture. And so I'm convinced that Christianity is true in an evidence-based way, so that my faith in God and Christ is not, as Richard Dawkins thinks, believing where there's no evidence. It's believing where there is evidence. And in that sense, it resembles my faith in Newton's laws, for example. <clears throat> okay. Now, in your book, in this, specifically in chapter, which you just touched on, I think it's chapter six, where you deal with uh, how to disprove, it's actually chapter eight, how to disprove Christianity, which you just mentioned. Karl Popper, philosopher of science, talked about falsifiability as one of the criterias for true science. Um, but Christianity is a faith based in enterprise. It has dogmas in it, like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or God has, um, um, you can trust him that when you die, you will see him, as Job said, face to face. Uh, there's a trust involved there that you mentioned, but then you have that evidence-based faith, um, evidence. So how, no, do you, how do you link there's, those? There's no contradiction between the two. Christianity is an evidence-based belief system, and I'd be a fool to believe what the Bible claims unless I thought there was evidence for it. And I think this is okay. enormously important. Why? Because so many people I meet think that when you talk about faith, you mean something religious and believing something that you know isn't true. That's totally false. Mm. And that's how they drive a wedge between what they call faith and science. No, science involves faith at the basic level. As I said earlier, a belief that science can be done and the intelligibility of the universe. Similarly, when it comes to Christianity, faith is expected of us, but it's faith that's based on evidence. It's not blind. It's not blind. Man, okay. Let me move on then. One of uh, you just did a uh, big town hall meeting with um, one of your colleagues, Peter Atkins, at the University of Oxford, uh, where he argued exact opposite of your position that the scientific worldview does not need the hypothesis of God to make sense of it. Um, how do we uh, work with people who are of his caliber, um, who would see uh, people who are um, uh, believers? 
uh, in God or theists in general um, as either suppressing the truth of God or there's something intellectually not working up there and now uh, the light bulbs are not all turned on so to speak <laughs> um, uh, how do we um, address that one of those objections because even in our own scriptures in, in Romans 1 Paul talks about um, the truth of God is being revealed among heaven, among all nature. His, his nature is clearly seen, but there are those who do suppress it. Um, suppressing that truth and worshiping the other things other than God as a, as a substitute. Um, so to conclude this question and, and to give, it, give you the, 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 the stage here, uh, John Calvin said that we all have a sensus divinatus, a sense of God, every one of us. Would you argue that then in that case, are there any real atheists out there on a deep level? <laughs> well, let me just put you straight on something. Yes. I did have a moderated discussion with my colleague Peter Atkins a week or so ago, but it wasn't in the Oxford Town Hall. Oh. It was in Southampton University, okay. and it can be seen online. I did, however, a few days before that, have an interview, a very interesting interview, on the topic of my book by a senior editor of the world-famous journal The Economist. That can also be seen online. Yeah, I'll put our show notes for people there. Your point of about Peter Atkins is, and the simplest answer to your question is, how do we deal with people like that? Well, the only way I know of dealing with people like that is the way I did deal with it, <laughs> in that debate and you'd need to watch it to see. Firstly, I think whatever they say, I take their arguments seriously and I try to analyse them and I try gently but firmly to point out that I don't think their arguments are satisfactory. Even worse, as you'll see, if you watch this dialogue, <laughs> he made a lot of assertions. He simply says there is no God and uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Well, it's very easy to make assertions, mm -hmm. but if he's claiming to be a scientist who bases his arguments on evidence, there wasn't any evidence. Mm. Uh, and so I, I take your point that can be difficult to deal with this kind of thing but when I'm facing an audience and there was a large audience of students that was completely packed and many people were watching online what I'm trying to do is make a case for the Christian faith that people will perceive whatever the other person in the dialogue is saying that they'll see the strengths of Christianity as compared with what I believe to be the weaknesses of the atheist position now you referred to Romans chapter 1 yes. where Paul talks about there being powerful evidence of God in the universe, in the things that are made and I believe that, absolutely, that's an axiom when I'm talking to people. God has left us with evidence, so the first level of it is in the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so it's very interesting, for example, take the brilliant physicist who died not long ago, Stephen Hawking. Yes. He wrote a book or co-authored a book called The Grand Design. 
he sees the design. He admits he sees the design. And he has a chapter in his book where he says, well, that might persuade many of us to go back to the old view that this apparent design is caused by a designer. You'll notice he says the old view as if something that's old has got to be wrong. But <laughs> yes. he prefers an explanation in terms of a multiverse. Now, the thing that is fascinating is he sees the design. So it's there in front of him. It is totally obvious. But then he tries to explain it away mm. by referring to the concept of the multiverse, which doesn't explain it away at all, of course. And uh, when I first found Hawking's arguments I actually decided to write a short and I hope accessible book about them which is available it's called God and Stephen Hawking whose design is it anyway so people see that design but they deny it and Romans refers to that holding down the truth they see it but they reject it and in rejecting it, their arguments sometimes become very distorted mm. and very obviously false. As in, they lead to ad hominem attacks, which happened multiple times at your discussion there in that hall. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, well, com I commend you for how gracious you were and how you dealt with that. That well, is an example to all of us. Well, losing your temper is not a very wise way of conducting a debate. <laughs> no. And ad hominem arguments are really uh, very, very foolish and unwise yeah. indeed. Immature. I've conducted a lot of moderated debates, Professor, and I, I noticed at the end of the day, a lot of my students will recognize and remember how they treated each other, sometimes more than the actual arguments themselves. Oh, of profound. course they will. Yeah. Because that is the most important thing. Yeah. And uh, I come from Ireland. Yes. And, you know, the Irish can fight easily enough. <laughs> and I've seen the damage caused mm. by people simply arguing ad hominem and attacking each other. Mm. And it's most important in this area. You see, I don't want to be fooled, so I listen to the arguments. I read them very carefully of atheists, yes. and I respect them in the discussion because you gain nothing from simply shooting at people and from insulting the them. Yeah, well said, Professor. Let's conclude with a final question here for you. Uh, so the show, the one here we're on, Logically Faithful, one of the main maxims we have is helping people see the hope in Christ from the evidence. How do you navigate the roads of suffering in that? So with your work in, in the academy um, most of your life, how do you go through experiencing doubt or the paralysis of cognitive dissonance when what you want to be true is not what you see to be true and there's just some kind of difficulty in doubt? Can you give some advice for people from your own experience as we conclude how to deal with questions, unanswered questions and problems um, as we uh, go through this in our journey? Well, I do not regard doubt necessarily as cognitive dissonance. The question of doubt is an interesting one because once you use the word many people instinctively think of a kind of black hole experience where they're feeling psychologically as if everything's falling apart nothing is certain and their world is 
but actually the word doubt comes from a Latin word dubitari which means to be in two minds Hmm. in the sense that one is asking questions and what I've tried to do all of my life from my teenage years is to constantly put questions to my Christian convictions opening myself making myself in that sense vulnerable to attacks from people who do not share my worldview, and the effect of that has been to vastly increase the depth of my convictions because if Christianity is true then it will be able to answer objections and when I come up with objections then I spend time thinking through them and for people who are afflicted with that kind of question as many of us are then it's important to think them through remember in the New Testament the Lord Jesus himself encouraged his disciples to ask questions he didn't always answer them immediately but he encouraged inquiring minds and I think it's immensely important that people realize that you know there are all kinds of levels of doubt and some doubts can be cleared up simply by having extra information Yes, and it's a very wide field but I do not experience doubt in the sense of a cognitive collapse but rather in a very positive asking questions attempting to find answers but not worrying if I don't get answers immediately so the and on the, on the deeper level yes and there is a deeper level the hardest problem that anyone faces whether they're Christian or not is the problem of suffering and there will be questions about that that we not answer this side of eternity and therefore we need to face a very big and important question granted that as we look at the world we see a mixed picture I often call it beauty and barbed wire beauty and bombs we see a mixed picture we see some things that are beautiful and some things that are awful yes we have all to face that whatever worldview we've got and what helps me to face it is by asking this question granted that the world's like that is there evidence anywhere that there is a God whom we could trust with it. And that's where I believe Christianity is utterly unique because it tells us about a God who suffered in Christ upon a cross and who rose from the dead. And you know, in the end, that knowledge that God understands suffering because he's been through it, and secondly, that Christ rose from the dead, gives us hope there's no hope in atheism because by definition when you're dead you're dead Hmm. and there'd be no compensation or judgment for those who've destroyed the lives of others and it seems to me that here Christianity has a unique message because it tells us that justice is going to be done but it also gives us the hope of eternal life for those who are prepared to trust Christ Wow. Well, this has been a profound interview. There's a lot you've said here with the ending it with the word of trust. 
you give an antidote, and we'll, we'll conclude with this one time of um, uh, the example of Peter when he was approached, um, when he approached the um, people who were going to arrest Christ, and they ch- he, uh, he chopped off the ear of one of the magistrates there. And you use that as an example to us. Can we conclude with that example for our lives? Well, what I use that as an example of is what I get accused of because I come from Northern Ireland, which has a sad reputation for terrorism. Now, there are complex reasons for that, but many people associated directly with Christianity. So let's face that. And they say, look, how could you possibly be a believer when you come from a country which has seen different factions of so-called Christianity fighting one another. And my answer is to tell them that people who take up weapons to defend the name of Christ or his message are not Christian at all. And the example of the New Testament of Peter, who did not understand what was happening, and he took up a sword to try to protect Christ and ended up cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus put the ear back on. Hmm. And the point I make about that is, one, I believe he actually did that. It was a supernatural miracle. But secondly, it is noticeable that putting the ear back on enabled the man to hear. And the sad thing is in our world today, many people cannot hear They cannot hear the message of Christianity. Why not? Because they've had their ears cut off Hmm. by some abuse or violence done by so-called Christians. And I would say absolutely categorically, people that resort to violence of whatever kind in the name of Christ are simply not Christian. Because Christ himself forbade the use of violence to protect him and his message. And Obviously, and if you just think about it for a moment, Mm -hmm. how could violence possibly help in the cause of Christ? Since his message is one of peace with God, it's one of eternal life, it's one of love and hope and a living relationship with God. Mm -hmm. How can you push that agenda forward with weapons? Many a leader has found out to their cost that you one thing that you cannot do is impose truth on people with violence. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you. I think we'll conclude with that, uh, Dr. Lennox. Thank you so much for your time. And may it's God, my pleasure. May God bless I you. Trust that your program goes very well. <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you. Bye bye. 